Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Theology on Tap. We are going to get started. If this is your first time here, we are so glad that you are with us this evening. My name is Justin Hare. I'm one of the clergy at St. Philip's Church. This is my good friend, Brian McGreevy. He's also at St. Philip's with me. Um, what you'll need to know if this is your first time here is you'll see these little sheets of paper around the room. And uh, the most important thing is probably uh, for tonight, this little QR code on the top. We are going to talk about something that's hopefully interesting tonight, but whether it's related to that or not, you can submit any question whatsoever to us simply by scanning this QR code. And who's moderating tonight? Cole. Thanks, Cole. Awesome. And then Cole will be able to look at all the questions. If you see questions that you like, and you're like, ooh, that would be fascinating. I'd love Cole to ask that. Just like that, that question, and hopefully those will go up and, and he'll ask it. So uh, we will do our best to be brief and, and answer questions there. So it doesn't have to, to relate to anything that we talk about. It could be something burning, or it could be something about what we talk about. Or the Lord of the Rings. Or the Lord of the Rings, that's right. Uh, if you want to stay in touch with us and, and be up to date on all the things Theology on Tap, you can join our email list. Or, uh, and also we have a few things coming up. Obviously Christmas is coming up. I love how beautifully decorated this space is right now. It's lovely. But we have several Christmas Eve services that we, if you don't have a church home, if you don't have anywhere to go for Christmas Eve, we would love for you to join us. You can see that there on the right side. Also, we are taking a little break because of Christmas, and we will be back January 10th in the new year. So this is our last one of 2022. It's been a great year and we're ready to go out on a high note. Last thing I want to draw your attention to is we are having an oyster roast for young adults. We would love to have you join us on January 8th. You do need to sign up if, I think it's like 20 bucks per person, and you get a oysters, chili, there's soda, beer, wine, all of that's included until the 15th of December, and then prices go up. If money's tight you can talk to us there's a pay what you can option so um we would really love to have you join us it's going to be right there in the saint philip's courtyard lovely space it's always a good time it's like our third annual yep. that we've done so it's good tonight we are going to close out the year talking about something that might uh, i'm hoping this is kind of going to make sense it's not too philosophical but how does beauty and space and architecture and design how does that relate to our faith? How can it be used, perhaps, to help us grow in our relationship with God? And so I, I wonder uh, if by even starting this, Brian, if I was to say, um, is there any such thing as, is, is there such a thing as neutral space? To be in a certain space where uh, it just doesn't even matter? Or does space actually do something to us? Yeah, that's a great question. So. One of the things that I think is so important about this topic, this is one of those things that is just mostly off the radar of most people, whether they're Christians or not, uh, because our culture has moved so far away from where human beings have been really from the beginning of time. But if you look at the Christian view of creation and think about the world that God has made, the world is full of interesting and beautiful Things. I mean, just like in Charleston, we have the ocean, we have the beach, we have the marsh, we have live oak trees. We don't have gray rectangles of solid matter, and that's all. And so there's, you can learn something about God from looking at the way creation is. And there's something different about walking into this room, the way it looks with the lights and the cool uh, stuff on the wall and the brick and the rugs and all of that and of course all of the beautiful people that are in here uh, there's something very different about walking into a room like this versus walking into a room that's concrete block walls that are painted that sort of sick green that locker room walls are already always <laughs> painted with a linoleum floor and fluorescent lights hanging down that's a very different vibe and one of those makes you feel warm and invited and included and expectant. And the other one makes you feel like something bad is going to happen here. And um, <laughs> space, we're, we're wired in such a way that our, our built environment affects us just like the natural environment yeah. does. And it's intended to by design, is what yes. the Christian faith yes. would say. And uh, who here has heard of the term huga before? Yeah, okay, some people. So I found out Can about this. Can you spell it? 
Yeah, that's tricky. Oh my gosh, y'all are so smart. H-Y-G-G-E, go to the top of the class. So I didn't know about this until relatively recently. It was a couple years ago. And uh, we loved that term because it was this like Scandinavian where people who live way up in the north, like near the Arctic Circle, all this, and a lot of darkness throughout the year. It's really cold. And one of the ways that they just psychologically survive some of this is by creating... Huga, what they would call it, and this, the, the, using their space and the ambiance, so to speak, to create a space that does feel, like you said, warm, inviting, uh, more whole, in a yeah. sense. And so uh, this, this room right now has a lot of Huga in it, it I would say, which is pretty neat. But uh, I, I think that's one of the things we love about this time of year. So there's something, um, you know, just especially warm and, and joyous about coming in out of the cold into a an inviting space where there's a fire and, and conversation and uh, good friends and all this. Mm-hmm. Like, all of that mm-hmm. does something. Imagine being, you know, kind of like in a hospital with fluorescent lights and, as you said, like the floors and, you know, being in there for a year. And then if, if you were in, say, maybe a, a cottage that had a lot of natural light and, and candlelight and a, and a fireplace uh, with a, a full fire going and... Um, that sort of like that, that over over time over a year you would be probably a very different person mm-hmm. just by being in that very environment and there's research that supports that well yeah. good good to know I, that was my hunch but i didn't know you know you of course know this but so um you know one of the things we have to confess why we're talking about this tonight is we were kind of approached out of the blue by a young man who's doing a master's thesis on sacred space and he was looking at different churches and their architecture and design. And he was like, well, St. Philip's is kind of one of these classical churches. And he wanted to kind of get uh, our perspective on sacred space. And boy, was, I don't know if he knew what he was walking into because we were like, we have lots of thoughts about this, actually. And uh, so a lot of what we're going to talk tonight about is, is kind of how we, in, in a worship gathering, try to use that space to help bolster and nourish our faith in God. Um, how, how would you start off by saying maybe that St. Philip's maybe in particular does that? Well, I think one of the things about St. Philip's is that it is a space that was built and dedicated for worship. It is a space that is set aside out of the mainstream of life and focused for worship. And in the history of the Christian faith, and really even in Judaism, there have always been places that are set aside, that are set apart. And that's actually what the word holy means. It means to be set apart. And you see, like, even back in the Old Testament, when you see um, Abraham builds an altar, or when Noah comes off the ark, he builds an altar that is a space that is dedicated to God. It's a space that's set aside. And so St. Philip's is in that long tradition. But the other thing that St. Philip's is part of a long tradition is that there was an understanding really until probably the 19th century that there was a type of architecture that caused human flourishing because there is design that is hardwired into the creation. And this, I'm trying not to get too esoteric. Go for it. Uh, but if you don't know, does anybody know what the Fibonacci sequence is? Oh, surely. Come on. Look, that's Some good. People yeah. know. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's math, uh, right? So, yeah, math. yeah but if you, if, you, if you look at things like the petals on a daisy or the shell of a nautilus, all of those things, there are these ratios that are exactly the same across all of these different random things in the natural world. And then there are also those same ratios in the buildings that have traditionally been considered to be the most beautiful buildings in the world. And there's a thing called the golden mean and the golden ratio that used to be the way buildings were built. And they're designed to make you feel um, ennobled, to, to speak to the best of who you are, and to try to bring that out. And that particularly buildings like libraries and churches and government buildings where you were aspiring to these ideals of truth and justice and beauty and wisdom, they were all built with really high ceilings. If you go into any library that was built before, say, the 1880s, 
invariably it's going to have a high ceiling, big windows. The churches are going to have big, tall ceilings, courtrooms, courthouses where justices dispense. The same thing, because there was this understanding that that was what, when you walk into a place that feels consequential, um, it ennobles the kind of actions that take place there. Yeah. Um, I just really restrained myself. Well, I, one of the things that, it was funny, I told this, this PhD or master's thesis gentleman, uh, you know, I can answer, he reached out to me, I was like, I can answer some of these questions, but really the person you should talk to is Brian, because my kindergarten <laughs> level of answering is not going to be no, compared to no. Brian's PhD, no, as no. I'm sure, but, no, no. Um, you know, I, I grew up going to a church like St. Philip's that was, um, and I, and I honest to goodness, couldn't stand it, uh, just the formality of it, and it just all felt very cold and rigid, and um, in college, I went to a big, big church that was meeting in an old hotel actually and it was amazing it's kind of cool because like they um there were no windows at all but it was like a thousand people and like this guy was teaching the bible in a way that i never really heard and it really resonated with me it was amazing and it captivated me um but obviously now i'm back in a church like saint Philip's, which is fascinating and uh, one of the things i realized was space and architecture can be a tool as you said that they can do things to us. It can instill in us not only a sense of beauty, but values like transcendence mm -hmm. and reverence, right? Mm -hmm. Those things can be objectively instilled and evoked out of you just by the space that you're in. Yep. Um, you said this when we were taking him through the, the sanctuary at St. Philip's. Imagine, what was it, like the 17th, 18th century, walking into this space when there isn't the kind of technology that we have and how the average building height in Charleston or whatever, but just how giant it would yes. feel walking in and the automatic sense of how small you are and the transcendence of it um, is amazing. And so uh, I kind of worked my way back into appreciating the the role and value of these things, um, not as kind of a uh, something that's just very cold and rote and, and, and formal, but if they're used in as in service to a real vibrant authentic faith um that can be good and so we've talked about like sacred space right and i think one of the biggest things i've come to realize is if i, I think i appreciate or one of the things like growing up like you know god cares about everything right there's not any square inch of our lives that god doesn't care about and that really captivated me as, in college and, and afterwards but if everything is sacred then nothing is sacred. And sacred meaning set apart yep. for an intentional purpose. And so I think that's one of the things, like I, I really kind of kind of uh, scoffed at the idea that there's a hierarchy of like really good things that God cares about and then other areas that God, that's not what we're talking about at all. We're saying like using space uh, in service of something that isn't necessarily better uh, than other people or different things, but using space as a tool to evoke uh, important Christian uh, feelings, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So that might not have been very clear, but maybe you understand what I'm saying. No, I think that makes good sense. And I think part of the part of the issue is that, as I was alluding to a minute ago, there actually is a lot of research about this that people that live in what I would call Soviet pancake-style architecture, which is um, low ceilings, not a lot of windows, lots of concrete, um, no ornamentation, just sort of like a parking deck, um, kind of like that with maybe a wall on the outside, um, that when you live places like that, you are statistically like two to three times more likely to experience depression and anxiety than if you were living in a Georgian-style building that is symmetrical. And that doesn't make any sense on any kind of normal metric unless you think that's the way that maybe God made people that were just wired that way. Mm. And uh, we, we respond to symmetry, we respond to beauty. And one of the things that's interesting, part of the reason that Charleston is so unbelievably popular with tourists and why they always talk about, they love how walking around in Charleston makes them feel is that particularly when you get south of Market Street down the peninsula, almost everything built there is built with the golden ratio, the golden mean, all of these ideas 
a proportionate symmetry. And it makes you feel different than you do when you're walking through a city that's a bunch of empty concrete canyons. Mm -hmm. And so that's true in worship spaces as well. And it's interesting when you look in the Old Testament, God could have just had people, commanded them to worship him anywhere. It could have been just on a plane or in a cave or whatever. But when you look at the Old Testament, God is always giving these very specific directions about the kind of place to build for worshiping him. And it is always somewhere that is beautiful. Even the simple ones like the movable tabernacle are still beautiful. And then when it gets to the temple, it is even that much more so. And you see that same principle at work. If you go to Europe and you look at the cathedrals that are there, um, there's this idea that we need to be reminded of the beauty of who God is and the beauty of the heavenly realm that awaits all of us uh, and that we, we touch that in a way in sacred space that you don't if you're meeting in a hotel ballroom. Yeah. You know, that was uh, one of the, I, I realized pretty quickly that there was just a difference in how they approached what the goal was on Sunday morning. So the church that I had gone to in college, like the goal was to try and get people to, as many people as possible to come in and not feel risk, not be uh, anxious about it, that they could kind of come and go and be anonymous. And so they, they kind of dimmed the lights. They, it was very much a stage and then everybody else. And so, um, and we were all kind of on the same level. And it was just, the more I thought, and again, no natural light, any of this stuff, and the more I thought about it, there's some remarkable differences to that versus like classical design in, in worship spaces. And there's probably so many things that you could talk about, but one that stands out to me is every person, uh, the, the, oh, sorry, going back to the goal, right? Was So if that's your goal is to try and get as many people and for it to be almost anonymous that you can kind of really uh, appeal to people who are maybe seeking and you can just make it easy. Um, I realized, wow, the goal of some of these more classical churches was to give you a taste of heaven itself. And so from, like, it really was like walking into Narnia, another world altogether. And that's very much like kind of what St. Philip's is trying to do is you're not going to be anonymous in this place. In fact, you have a part to play every bit as important as uh, the, the priest or the ministers in the service. Everyone has a very important part of it. And, and it's all from the architecture to the, the um, art that's inside of it designed to, to evoke these feelings of transcendence and, and reverence, but also beauty and a taste of what heaven is. So how how does that kind of operate in, in a place like St. Philip's? What are some of those architects or the symbolism that's there? Well, I think there are a number of things. Part of, one of the things that's really different is that when you walk into a church like St. Philip's, it is designed to draw your eye in a very particular way. And what it does is it draws your eye all the way down the main aisle to the altar and to the cross that's on the altar and then sort of to a lesser degree, the stained glass window that's over the altar, and then the high pulpit that's up there. So you are, you are focused in on those things. And when you are focused on those, one of the things that means is that you're not focused on yourself. Um, it's not like a place where you're expecting somebody to come and bring you coffee. You know, it, it's not that kind of environment. And it reminds you that the purpose of worship is to focus on God, not on yourself. And we live in such a narcissistic culture. Almost everything is focused on us all the time. And this is part of what the word transcendence means, to be in touch with something that is other, with a capital O, um, in the way that God is transcendent. Um, he's also eminent, which is a fancy word of saying he's with us, but he also is transcendent and holy. And the architecture helps to reinforce that and it also militates the, against the idea that what goes on during a church service is a performance mm -hmm. um, because it's really easy even when people have the best intentions if your worship space is set up like a stage and it's kind of like the musicians are up on the stage and then everybody else is sitting in a dim light under it feels like a rock concert and there's there are 
expectations that go with that kind of feeling. St. Phillips does not feel like a rock concert. And the architecture is powerful. It's really interesting because we have probably somewhere between three and 600 people a day who are just like random tourists walking around that come in there. And it's fascinating to go just stand right inside the door. And you may hear people you know, outside and they're, they're like with their friends and they're slapping on the bed like, ah, how about them dogs? That was amazing this weekend. Oh my God. Oh, there's a church. Let's go in there. And the, and the instant they walk in, they're like, oh, is it okay to say anything? <laughs> you know, and it's just the architecture. Nobody has told them to do anything or change their behavior, but the building itself speaks to them in such a way that they know that this is a space that's set apart. And particularly for people that will take the time to go and sit and just be quiet in there for a while. We, every week we hear dozens of people say, this was one of the most amazing spiritual experiences I've ever had. And they didn't talk to anyone, they didn't sing a hymn, they didn't pray, well they might have prayed, but. Um, it's just the power of the sacred architecture. Yeah, yeah. If you've seen movies or you know TV, like the power of the nudge that directors and producers they understand this, right? Like they can figure out where your gaze. They can kind of rig the system so that your gaze is on something. And that's exactly what architecture does as well. And as you said, it's the the, the cross and the importance of Jesus and His cross as the center of Christianity. Um, it's you know it's where God's justice and mercy meet mm -hmm. and one of the things too that you can't help but notice is this giant pulpit that is about 10 feet above where everybody else is and yeah one of it is you one of the reasons why you have that is you can see everybody uh, from the pulpit but more than that it, it there's symbolism to this that we are under not the preacher we are under the Word, word of God, God yep. which is where the pulpit comes from and he, you know this young man he was like um, is it different for you being in something like that than, say, in an auditorium or something? And it's like, you go up there and you tell me if it feels different. And you walked right, he was like, can I do it? And he walked right up there. And it was like, oh my gosh. And I remember you were like, yeah, it's a space that there's a, just like what people walking in off the street, you, you, you kind of just, there's a sense of seriousness. Yeah, that there's you're a not sense of crack. weightiness. Yeah. Yeah, and we were talking about this when I had the, great joy of being in Oxford for um, several weeks this summer, and we were staying in Christchurch College, which is one of the most beautiful colleges in Oxford, and it's where a lot of Harry Potter was filmed, and the uh, dining hall there is essentially the Hogwarts dining hall. They took it, and then they sort of messed with it to make it bigger uh, by digitizing different parts and then copying them. But when you go into that hall, and there are all of these portraits and this incredible architecture, we were talking with our friends who were with us, that you wouldn't, you would feel like when you went into that space for your meals day after day after day, that you were not somebody who was expected to just live an ordinary life. Mm. That you were somebody who was expected to aspire to be the kind of person that could change the world and make it a better place. And when you see, you know, um, the Wesley brothers who both went there on the wall, you see prime ministers on the wall, all of that kind of thing. Um, it, it ennobles you just in the same way when you go up into the pulpit at St. Phillips, there's a sense of weightiness when you're up there, that this matters. And the architecture is what does that. Yeah. You think even, uh, that's the whole point of steeples, it's the point of the columns that are there that have like the Corinthian design and everything you walk in and just in the high ceilings you're looking up and I think you've probably realized we're very much in favor of classical design and this has kind of been a, a case for classical architecture um, or a defense of it but you know one of the things that is so prevalent in our day is everything just says it's all about you it's all about this life and so I think now more than ever there is a sense to kind of recapture the classical design and tradition that says no there's a sense there's certain things that are transcendent and, and deserve reverence and um that that's i think now more than ever really important to kind of recapture i know we've already talked longer than we probably should have but let me close with this question to you uh, 
obviously, just going out and building a church like a St. Michael's or a St. Philip's or a cathedral, I can only imagine how much that would cost. What would you say to folks who are, you know, now we're, there are a lot of people in our diocese even who are planting churches and they're in an auditorium or a cafeteria and they just simply don't have the finances? Or how might they make that kind of space uh, more sacred or capture some of these ideals we've talked about? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great question. I would include in that even your own living space mm -hmm. and particularly the space where if you have um, times of worship or times of studying the Bible in your apartment or your house or whatever, what can you do? And I think part of it is taking some of those same principles. You don't have to have stonemasons and stained glass artists and all of that at your disposal to bring in some of these principles. One of the great principles of classical architecture is symmetry and light and beauty and texture. And so there's a lot, and you know, if you're a small church worshiping in an auditorium, making a central aisle, having an altar that has flowers on it and a beautiful cross on it, having torches um, that are symmetrical, you know, all of those kinds of things make a difference. And, you know, even in your own um, worship space at home, if you have a neat and orderly area, if you have a candle you can light when you read the Bible, if you have a beautiful view that you can look out onto when you're praying, all of those things will feed your soul. And one of the things I was challenged to do um, several years ago by someone was to um, spend part of my prayer time each day outside. And that can be a wonderful practice, um, particularly if you live somewhere where there's at least somewhere you can look that's beautiful. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of these principles of classical design can be applied even without much money or without much space. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really helpful. You know, one of the things I've encouraged some of the college students that I minister to was doing an Advent wreath. And that's a great time because it's like, okay, we don't really know what this is. But even, you said, just lighting a candle, having some sort of, like, purpose to something that can, or doing it outside or being in a beautiful space and just adding just a candle or light will enhance in many ways how you approach reading God's word and, and hearing from the Lord in prayer and that sort of thing. So Yeah, and I think the other aspect of it is just to remember that God is a God of order and not a God of chaos. And so where there's order, um, there's beauty in that. And that um, helps us, you know, when we're thinking about scriptures like setting your mind on Christ, setting your mind on things about where Christ is, Order and beauty help us to do that. Well, that's a good place to go to questions. How are we doing? Um, we have quite a few, actually. So if you all could take a moment to um, go ahead and log on and like some of your favorite ones, and you'll get started here shortly. Good talk. Good talk. Here, here. We can already ask one, I suppose, with... Uh, Total life. Um, do you believe in thin places, places where the spirit of the Lord is closer? Yes, um, I, and that is a, an aspect of Celtic um, Christianity, and I think that there there are two aspects to that. I think that there are some places that are particularly beautiful, where because of the beauty and order of the way that the space is, or the outdoor area is, that there is an extra sense of the presence of God there. But I also think that there can be a spiritual dimension where if there's been a place where there has been prayer offered and ministry going on for a long time because of the understanding that the word holy does mean set apart. If a place has been set apart and there's been faithful Christian ministry going on there, when you enter that space, you, you have a sense that you are moving in to something where there is holiness there. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Agreed. That, especially in a, a worship service on Sunday morning where it's the Lord's Day, God's people are gathered together, and they're there to, to praise His name, and He promises to be with them, and particularly that moment where two or three are gathered together to sing His praises and to hear his word. And that's kind of where, you know, the dimension of heaven and the dimension of earth start to, to feel more thin, probably. Yeah. 
And I would, I would say one of the things I also got to do this summer was to go to Mont Saint-Michel in France. And Mont Saint-Michel is just a thin place. I mean, it's no accident. You wouldn't think that a monastery would be one of the top tourist attractions in the world. That seems kind of bizarre, but it is. And it's because there's incredible beauty there, but it's not just the beauty of the way that it's set up. When you are inside it, there is just this palpable sense of holiness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's see, uh, on the other side of that coin, actually, um, can a physical place be spiritually dangerous, as in cursed, or perhaps having a history of sin? I would also say yes to that. Um, I'm not sure I would use the word cursed, but I do think that there are places that need to be cleansed, maybe is the way that I would say it, and that there is, spiritual warfare is a very real thing, and um, there are, there are places where I have been and where I have been part of doing that kind of cleansing of a place where there very clearly was something that was, um, let's just say, awry there and that needed um, to have the light and power of Christ brought into it. And um, do you want to add? Yeah, I, I, leaning more into what you said at the first part of that is that I don't think there's any place on earth that would necessarily uh, be ruled out for sacred space. That yes, there may have been certain things that are there, but uh, that may need to be cleansed, as you said, or um, kind of reset and rededicated to the Lord. But there's not like, um, you know, at the outset, any particular place in the world that would necessarily be inappropriate for sacred space. Gotcha. How should we respond to a place that has been sacred to us, um, is taken away or destroyed? How should we respond to a place that has been sacred to us when it is taken away or destroyed? That's a great question. That is a really good question and one that I know is very relevant for a lot of people in this room. It's very relevant for me personally. Um, I think it's really difficult. Um, I think that the, the key to dealing with that is to be thankful to God for the place, to be thankful for the experience of the Holy Spirit that you were able to have in that place, and then to pray, um, if the place is still existing, to pray that the Lord in his providence would restore it or would use the, the power of the place to draw the people that have it now um, to himself, something like that. That's a really good answer. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I think for me, I almost resented this question, if I'm honest, at earlier points in my life where I was so heart set on saying that, you know, the church is not, you know, tied to a place, it's the people. And while that's true, I think I really didn't give full weight to just how powerful space can be. And that's part of my journey. Um, and so I think it's important to, as you said, to, to grieve that, to acknowledge that, yeah, there's real loss that's there. And yet, even in our grief as Christians, I think the whole point of sacred space is that it gives us just a little foretaste of what heaven's like. It's a little glimpse. Yeah. And so to remember that we are pilgrims on a journey to the, the, the shadows and the dim glimpses that we got of God in that space, are it's going to be everything like that and more. Right. The, Infinitely the, the fullness yeah. of what it pointed to will be realized in truth one day when we're with him face to face. And so just to remember that in your grief probably uh, is important. Yeah. But I think it is, you know, don't feel bad about grieving that. I think it's important to grieve and um, maybe to talk with somebody about that if you need to. Yeah. To what extent can we justify the cost of beautiful worship spaces while people in our communities are in need? Oh yeah, that's a great one too. That is a really good question, and um, it's one that I would say part of the answer to that is that if you look back into the Old Testament and the New Testament and Christian history, um, there has always been a priority placed on building beautiful places for the worship of God, no matter 
the culture and that most of the people who were in the medieval cathedrals were people who were very, very poor and that that was a place where they felt at home. Um, so, but I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and. I think that um, the church has incumbent upon it the responsibility um, to help care for the poor, to care for the needs of the community, and to provide beautiful places of worship. So yeah, both of those. Yeah, beware the false choice, right? I think this is a question that I've wrestled with a lot, and that's essentially the answer I got. I mean, you see in the Old Testament, God calling these sacred things an abomination to him when they neglect the poor and they neglect to do justice. These things are so important to God, but it's not an either-or for him. It's both care for the poor and yet worship me in the beauty of holiness. It's both of those. And, um, you know, we need to perhaps, and that's why I asked that last question, you know, how can we, where we are, and it's, it's both of those, create beautiful spaces even with limited finances and, and that sort of thing, but um, ideally it's, it's both of those, right? Yeah. Uh, y'all touched on this a little bit before, but is beauty worth fighting for, and how should we fight for beauty in our communities and personal lives? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I would say absolutely beauty is worth fighting for. I think part of what um, is going on in our culture that is very much at the macro level, so it's hard to um, see it day by day, but one of the things that is happening in our culture is a demeaning of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, because to be human means to be created in the image of God. To be not only someone who is created beautiful, but who has the capacity to create beauty. Out of all creation, only humans have the capacity to create beauty. But there is a very strong philosophical movement in our culture that says humans are animals and that we are no different from any other animal and that we are um, creatures of our instincts and we should just go with whatever the instincts of our bodies are and that there's no higher law, that there is no real beauty. But I think that part of what it means to be human and to be made in the image of God is to understand what beauty is and to see objective beauty as part of the way that God made the world and to resist attempts um, to demean or deface that. Yeah, there's, there's a way you can look at the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of human existence, as a fight for beauty. That sin is the marring of that which is created beautiful and good. And that's sin and evil are just a perversion on that the good that God made, right? And so fighting for beauty is the whole call of the Christian life, in, in a sense, both in a commun community sense, but also in a personal sense, using our the, the bodies the way in, that they were made for, the, as you talked about, the, the bodies that we have are made in His image and of infinite worth and dignity. And um, the biggest thing here, hopefully you're starting to realize, is the whole uh, adage, beauty in the eye of the beholder, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, is just not true. Uh, that there is real, what we've said, objective beauty. There's certain things that we were hardwired for, as you said, to, uh, that resonate with us. And Christians say this is because we have a God who made the world in such a way that uh, it resonates with us precisely for that reason. And so um, f falling in line with the way he's made us and his world, the fact that he is beautiful, the fact that he's made the world beautiful, and to live more into that and appreciate that is the whole of Christian discipleship, it's the whole of fighting sin, which seeks to destroy that which is beautiful, as you said. Um, and I think that's one of the great lenses to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy through, because part of what Tolkien is doing is making an apologia for the idea of beauty. Mm -hmm. And you see that part of what they are fighting for is the beauty of the Shire and the beauty of the way life is in the Shire and the beauty of Middle-earth and that the forces of Sauron on the other side are committed to destruction and ugliness and death. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the brilliance of what Tolkien is doing there is showing how this beauty is so important. Yeah.
I have to throw out Paralandra too. Yeah. Because that one of them. Uh, no, and I'm sorry, but you went with Tolkien. That's I gotta go. So, yeah. one of the little known books of uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy series, which I don't like, Space Trilogy or Space Science Fiction, that sort of thing doesn't normally strike my fancy. But this book just absolutely stunned because he had this picture. It's a. It's kind of like an Eden, you know, a, the original creation on another world and it's kind of like that and he just, just he paints the picture of the marring of that beauty and, and it was just like it brought me to tears the first yeah. time I read it so yeah. Paralandra Lord of the Rings read some of the great works of fiction and that, that's resonating with what the Bible is talking about right. yeah. yeah I had to throw that out there thank you it wasn't me I mentioned Saul's I'll send the shell but um the person is asking for is what are your three favorite cathedrals or traditionally sacred spaces in the world? That's really hard. Um, I would say for me, Mont Saint Michel is definitely one of them. Um, I would say probably Saint Paul's Cathedral is another one. And I haven't been in Notre Dame since the fire, so I don't quite know what it's looking like now, but Notre Dame would definitely be the third. I, yeah, I, I haven't had the <laughs> privilege of being able to go to some of these. <laughs> You're not so old as I am. You still got time. That's amazing. But uh, so, I mean, to, uh, like, I'm assuming most of y'all are like me, unless you're more like Brian and you've been to these places. But, um, you know, there was a, the church I was at in Clemson. There was something special. It was this medical uh, practice, but it was also his uh, house. It, it was, and they repurposed it to be, instead of a place of medical healing, to be a sanctuary for spiritual healing. And they brought in all in wonderful symmetry and natural light, and there were great artists who made it a beautiful space. And that really resonated with me. I think one of the things I'm excited to see, uh, and this isn't a cathedral or a worship space, but I think it is going to be a sacred space, is the Rwandan genocide. I'm going to Rwanda this April, and I really am interested in seeing some of the memorials for something that has been so... Uh, talk about a marring of beauty. I mean, genocide. And how they have repurposed space to tell a more beautiful story. I think I'm really interested to see to see that in person. Tell me what you really think about mega churches, quote unquote. M mecca? No, mega. Mega. <laughs> With a G. Um, I am. It's a try. I am grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful for mega churches that are preaching the word of God. So I think scripture tells us that when the word of God is preached faithfully, it does not return empty or void. And I think that is a, a wonderful thing, and I think there is a place for that. I think if that was all that there was, that would be a problem. Um, I personally would find that a difficult environment to worship. Um, but I think particularly for people that need a cultural bridge. So for example, if you are, um, well, I could even put myself in this category. I have been called obsessed by some people um, with U2 and some other bands like that. And um, I did go to about 20 different U2 concerts over my lifetime, including one last week. Um, but. Um, <laughs> If you're used to that kind of environment and you're comfortable in that kind of environment and then you, but you're not a believer and then you go to a church that feels a little bit like that but there's there's truth that's coming from the teaching, I think that can be a, a wonderful bridge into the Christian faith. Yeah. That's a good way to answer it. I, obviously, I mean, I've shared a little bit about, I went to one in college, it was a major blessing. I'm still grateful, still have a lot of friendships from that, that time. And so the last thing I want anybody to hear is, you know, this is something where we have brothers and sisters in the faith that we have so much more in common than we have in different uh, difference. And so we may disagree on how to best use space and that sort of thing. But um, I, I would also say, in addition to maybe architectural differences, the whole notion I see when I look at the New Testament, you know, a mega church being defined as like thousands. 
I think the way the New Testament talks about the church is it's primarily a community of people in a specific location that, that does life together, that knows one another. It's really hard to do that with 2,000 of you know people in there where you may show up and not know anybody. There's meant to be accountability and, and fellowship where you can go to someone when you're struggling and to really know each other. It's really hard to do that in, in, a, in a big church. And so, again, I, I would say that this, these are brothers and sisters in the faith um, and I'm deeply appreciative of the one that I went to, but I, I also see that probably in, in Scripture. All right, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of space, is believing in aliens, in parentheses, specifically intelligent life in the universe somewhere other than Earth, in parentheses, going against the teachings of the Bible? <laughs> I said science fiction was not my thing. So <laughs> Um, there are actually, believe it or not, some really great C.S. Lewis essays on this exact topic. Are you kidding me? No. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. And he could answer that way better than I could. But I would say the basic answer is that we do not want to put any limits on God because God is... Um, infinitely more than we can even imagine and God exists in more dimensions than we do. One of the analogies I always use um, that is getting very dated because now y'all are so young, nobody did this in the elementary schools. Anybody old enough to have ever done flat Stanley in elementary school? Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay, good. So you know flat Stanley, the little cutout that's laminated and you take flat Stanley on your vacation and take a picture with Flat Stanley at Niagara Falls or Disney World. Um, but Flat Stanley's experience of Disney World or Niagara Falls is not the same as yours was. And our experience of the universe is not the same as God. So we don't want to limit God. On the other hand, we do know that God has said in his word that Jesus is the fullness of who God is. So that's maybe a non-answer, but... I like that non-answer. <laughs> I rest my answer in your non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody wants the C.S. Lewis essay, um, email me and I'll try to find it. Send it to you. Cool. Um, you mentioned that we live in a narcissistic culture. How does scripture advise us to combat this? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. Um, I think what scripture tells us is that love is all about uh, starting with loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor next. And I think getting our eyes off of ourselves to focus on loving God and to focus on loving and serving those who are made in his image, rather than thinking about ourselves and our anxiety and our entertainment and all of those kinds of things. Um, that's another reason the Lord of the Rings is so great because there's, throughout that whole uh, story, the idea of self-sacrifice. And you see this in the Narnia stories too, the idea that your life um, is not the most important thing in the world and that you were, you were built and created for a mission and that that mission is not just your own pleasure but it is to make a difference in this world that God has made, to pour yourself out for other people. A great way to just start on that process, if you feel all of us probably have a little narcissist in there somewhere, um, one of the best things you can do is to start praying proactively for some other people in your life. God will use that to change your heart, to make you more other-focused. Yeah, I love Augustine's understanding of pride as like the center of all sins, that... Um, everything kind of comes back to pride where we're focused on ourselves we're bent inward that's what sin yeah. does to us and so i think that i love what you said not even just focusing on others but focusing first on god recognizing that he's the king and caught up into this adventurous life of being his servant and and that that's not slavery that's freedom to live into this uh, vision of life that he's called us to have I love the C.S. Lewis quote of just the uh, humility being thinking, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And just basically self-forgetfulness is one of the key marks yeah. Yeah. of 
a vibrant Christian life. And there's you, a great Tim Keller, really short little booklet on self forgetfulness. That's what I, I was about to quote. I was about that was about to be the, the freedom of self forgetfulness was the the little book by Keller. Um, so th- those would be some good resources to check out. But um, yeah, it's it's having the freedom to stop thinking about yourself and think about God and to be able to serve other people out of that overflow of what God's done for you. Yeah. Oh, it's past time. I was looking at the second watch, uh, the second sign, whatever it is. We have one more? Is that what you said? No? We, okay. We can do one more. Do one more. Do one quick more. Lightning round. Lightning. Was brutalistic postmodern architecture intentionally introduced in the 20th century to be subversive to Western civilization? Absolutely. There's no <laughs> doubt. No, I'm serious. Brian, you wrote that question on purpose. No, didn't I, you? Did not. I did not. I, all you need to do is go to Milan and look at the train station, and I rest my case. Um, Mussolini and Hitler were all about brutalistic architecture because brutalist architecture is designed to support fascist political ideals. And there, I mean, it's all there in black and white, literally in the books and the letters. There's no doubt about it. And the unfortunate thing is it was then adopted by a lot of architects who thought it was cool because it was bold and innovative and different, but it's designed to crush the human spirit. Not that I'm opinionated. I'm so it. glad we asked one more question. That was awesome. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming tonight. We'll be around for a while. Feel free to hang out and chat. To keep and the conversation one thing, going. So, yeah. if you are, as Justin said earlier, if you are looking for somewhere to go Christmas Eve, the 7:30 and 10:30 services at St. Philip's are transcendently beautiful with music and candlelight and all of that. It will bless you to no end if you come to one of those. And if you you can't come to one of those, or maybe that's just too much for you, we would love nothing more, if you've never been in, just to take you around without any pressure. Like that would make us so happy. Just to share with you. I'm happy to do that anytime. So thanks for coming. We'll see you in the new year, or hopefully before that, but definitely in the new year. All right, thanks for coming.